Hey, cassettes, welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Oh, man. It's still frightening February. <laughs> We're three old, very real ghosts <laughs> learning yes. everything that we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Adam. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. Oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> Has this ever happened to you? You're sitting in a dark theater about to enjoy the next big summer blockbuster. Then the screen goes dark and some haunting music alerts you that the next movie trailer is for a horror film. Yeah. Oh boy, I'm in the wrong theater. <laughs> Clutching your popcorn, you see flashes of ghosts, demons, jump scares, and shaky cam. <laughs> yeah. Every time. <laughs> the scariest part. The scariest of cam. You may feel a little creeped until you see the scariest part of all. Words flashing on the screen that read, based on a true story. Oh, man. Oh, Yikes. no. That was always the I always, every time, you yeah. know? I remember just being a kid and seeing scary stuff on the TV mm -hmm. and then based on a true story. What? It's like, shit. Oh. <laughs> this could happen. Damn really? <laughs> oh, no. As unbelievable as it seems, many classic horror films were based on actual documented events. Mm. <laughs> sure, the stories may have changed when they made it to Hollywood, but it's still creepy to imagine that these horrifying tales were inspired by real experiences. Yeah. I Just nope. No thanks. <laughs> For this week's episode of Frightening February, we each picked a horror film that was based on or inspired by a true story. Yeah. Mm. So this is going to be interesting. Uh -huh. yes. One of our prompt episodes. Yeah. yeah. Thought, it's been a bit since we've done one. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but real quick, just a little disclaimer for you guys. Some of these stories involved real life tragedies and violent acts. We did not usually discuss this kind of material on our show, so we wanted to give you a heads up just in case you find the topics of real-life violence and death triggering. Yeah. We don't talk about real crimes right. on this show. Usually yeah. when we talk about this stuff, it's fake. Mm -hmm. It was written in a movie, but this is real. Some of this stuff is real, so we just want to let everybody know. Yeah. Just in case this stuff upsets you and mm -hmm. you just kind of mm -hmm. want to hit the skip button If you're not or into, like... You know, if you don't also listen to true crime yeah, or something yeah. like that. It's not going to be as intense as like a true crime Right, we're no. not going into the Show. details. But. but yeah, this is going to be, it's a, it's going to be a little, I don't know, a little more intense than normal. Yes, yeah. yes. So, I'm going first. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the film that I have chosen that is based on a true story is... Jaws. Oh. 1975. But, um. You're going to need a bigger boat. Surprise. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> I, was, I was shocked to see that this was a real story. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. So, Jaws is definitely a classic, but here is a synopsis for those of you who may have not seen it. It's the height of beach season. And the town of Amity Island is terrorized by attacks from a great white shark. As panic threatens to deprive the city of its crucial tourist season, the mayor turns to Martin Brody, the new chief of police, to solve the issue. Brody enlists the help of an oceanographer and a sea-weary fisherman to hunt down the great white menace that has turned the Amity Island shore into a feeding ground. Oh, man. <sighs> so, we're going to talk a little bit about the making of the movie first. All right. As we do. Directed by the one and only Steven Spielberg, Jaws was based on the 1974 novel written by Peter Benchley. Benchley penned the first drafts of the screenplay, and actor-writer Carl Gottlieb, who rewrote the script during principal photography, which means that... <laughs> they were already shooting, <laughs> and they were still writing the script, so that's fun. Yeah, yeah. That's, always, that's always good news. That's always really 
great to it's, hear. Yeah, Exciting. It's a, it's a surefire way to make sure that your film will not film in time. Yes. Yeah, it's going to go over. Before Jaws began filming, Spielberg wanted to direct the film Lucky Lady instead. Studio head Sid Scheinberg basically ordered him to make Jaws. If you ask Scheinberg, Spielberg was not happy with the decision and reportedly had the attitude of, you're my friend. How could you make me do this fish picture? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this fish picture. I know. That's all it and is. And the fish picture that basically yeah. made him a household name. Seriously, right? <laughs> Look, looking back, how can you be, yeah. how did he not want to? He probably to... was very quiet. Yeah, after yeah. afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're going to question me now. Yeah. <laughs> Spielberg ultimately agreed to shoot the film. He decided to film on the Atlantic Ocean hindering production and creating logistical difficulties, equipment issues, and weather-related delays. <laughs> because of this, Jaws took more than twice as long to make as planned and cost nearly four times the original budget. I'm sure the Oof. studio was really happy oh, about it. Oh, they loved that. Super happy, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's so much stuff, and the shark itself is was notoriously difficult because it just didn't work uh, you know half the time i mean time. Yeah. it's an animatronic thing and yeah. you have to have it in the water it, it, yeah yeah and, and doing it in the real ocean where you don't have control over it instead of like mm -hmm. a studio pool or something like that Ugh, nightmare yeah. the film's box office success proved that spielberg's creative decision was worth the risk he explained Lake water, pond water, tank water don't have the same texture or violence that the ocean has. This needed to be a convincing story about a great white shark because if it wasn't, no one would believe it. True. Yeah. So now we'll talk a little bit about some of the stories that this film was based on. Oh boy. Author Peter Benchley had a lifelong fascination with sharks and was inspired to write the novel after reading about an estimated 4,500-pound great white shark caught by Frank Mundus in 1964. Oh, my God. Uh, absolutely Damn. gargantuan. Ugh. Mundus started monster fishing, an activity that began at the port of Lake Montuck. Mundus caught the enormous great white shark by harpoon. Later in 1986, he and Donnie Braddock caught another 3,427-pound great white shark about 28 miles off of Montuk, which still holds the record for the largest fish of any kind caught by rod and reel, yeah. which is outrageous. Yeah, no, that's... Wow. The, the one stipulation, though, is that this catch is not credited by the International Game Fish Association. I wonder why. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It is interesting because wonder, I, yeah. during my research, I looked up some more record fish catches, and mm -hmm. a lot of them are like marlins and tuna and things mm -hmm. like that, and I'm wondering if it was because it was a shark. Yeah. Oh. Maybe shark weren't considered game fish at the time yeah. or something like that. Okay. That makes so sense. It's like, so mm -hmm. it's like, of course it's the largest. Right. You know, exactly. like yeah. it's a because shark. Because it's a shark. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that is still incredible. Yeah. yeah. The size, I, either of those catches are insane wow. to think about. Wow. So obviously the giantness of the shark catches, that's yeah. a big inspiration. The second story is one of, if not the worst maritime disaster in U.S. naval history. On July 29, 1945, the USS Indianapolis sank due to an explosive chain reaction triggered by a Japanese torpedo. Of the almost 1,200 men aboard, 900 made it into the shark-infested water alive. Oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. But their ordeal was just beginning. As the survivors waited for rescue, the sharks fed on the floating bodies. However, the survivors' struggles in the water attracted more and more sharks. No. As the days passed, many sailors fell victim to heat and thirst or experienced hallucinations that drew them to drink the seawater around them, and this resulted in death by salt poisoning. Without going into too much more gruesome detail, of the Indianapolis's original 1,196-man crew, only 317 
remained. Oh my gosh. Mm. The number of men that died from shark attacks ranges from an estimated few dozen to almost 150. It's impossible to know the actual numbers. Regardless, this event is considered the deadliest shark attack in history. Oh, wow. Obviously, the shark from Jaws is deadly, mm-hmm. but yeah. this is something that is kind of hard to imagine. Right, mm-hmm. because this is a lot of sharks. This is a lot of sharks. They probably weren't even great whites because Mm-mm. great whites are found rarely yeah. in more than one. But just imagine floating on the water and not being able to do anything about it Mm -hmm. because there's just no one around oh i don't even want to think (sighs) about that you know it's just it's just this is the anxiety you can't do anything and you yeah and one piece that they brought into jaws the the fisherman quint that they hired um he supposedly was a survivor of this event Oh, oh wow so Ooh. he was a, you know, oh. he was a Navy SEAL and was on the the Indianapolis, which is crazy, yeah. right? Right. So and this poor man, you're gonna traumatize I, him further by making him I, fight. That's right. what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Bringing him on to <laughs> that's why he's so wary of the ocean, right? Yeah. Sure, he's a fisherman because that's like his life is the mm-hmm. sea, but he's so hesitant about it because of he knows yeah. how bad it gets, right? Yeah. He knows. Yeah. Okay. With the final story, the inspiration of Jaws will finally come into focus. In July of 1916, a nine-foot juvenile sea creature, then primarily unknown to scientists, briefly replaced the Great War in newspaper headlines. What? That means this is a big deal. Think about that. Yeah. From July 1st to the 12th, five swimmers were attacked, and four were killed by a great white shark on the Jersey Shore. The shark's reign of terror spanned 70 miles along the Atlantic, attacking victims from a beach town north of Atlantic City all the way to a farm town on an inland creek. The first death occurred in Beach Haven, New Jersey, and involved a recent University of Pennsylvania graduate named Charles Van Sant. Unfortunately, people on the beach didn't realize that he was serious when he screamed for help, which is an incredible shame. Honestly, let the joke, if it is fake for whatever reason, just let the prank be done on you because if you're, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, haha, you shouldn't joke about that, but you're alive. It's not worth it, exactly. Scientists at the time believed that sharks lacked the jaw power to bite through human enamel. It was the first recorded fatal shark attack in American history, but no one was aware. Death number two was reported after beachgoers discovered a body bitten in half. Oh my good lord. Another swimmer was pulled to his death in an estuary as a would-be hero wrestled the shark and died. Now, suddenly, the real-life monster made the front page of the New York Times. Some town mayors denied the attacks, fearful of losing seaside resort income, until the horror forced resorts to shutter their doors and the cities called in scientists for help. Does that sound familiar or what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very yep. much yep. sounds familiar. Yeah, absolutely. The 1916 story is almost the spitting image of Jaws. The movie Shark has a similar body count, killing four people, including a victim in an estuary. Right. Not only that, but moviegoers watch as a would-be hero wrestles the shark and dies. Yeah. <sighs> True to life, the mayor denies it's happening to try to protect the tourist dollars. After the fictional ichthyologist struggles to identify the species of the killer, he zeroes in on the legendary man-eating monster, Carcardon Carcarius, the great white shark. And even brings up the attacks from 1916. Right. So the, the movie's movie. like, okay, yeah, these, these, these existed. These yes. Were... It's, yeah. it's happening just like that. They yeah. didn't know what it was. They couldn't tell until they realized it was a great white. He says in the movie, it happened in New Jersey. It could happen again. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Even though Peter Benchley says that the incident was not the original inspiration for his book, the similarities are undeniable. Yeah. Maybe, like, I mean, he, 
It said he liked sharks a lot already. Yes. Maybe it inadvertently was the inspiration yes. for the book. Because <laughs> he would have probably known mm-hmm. about this. And during my research, there are multiple places. It says he was very much aware of this incident. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. He credits yeah. his inspiration to Frank Mundus and catching the giant shark, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But. Come on, bro. Come on, man. Come on, yeah. bro. Yeah. <laughs> It's the spitting image of this event. Yeah. Of course, Hollywood always embellishes stories to make them as entertaining or thrilling as possible. Right. So you knew that was going to (laughs) happen. For instance, they attempt to kill the shark with harpoons attached to barrels to keep it from diving. In the movie, Jaws is simply too large and powerful for this to work. A super behemoth of a shark can that can even pull the fishing boat backward. Right. It's an iconic moment in yeah. the movie. It starts yeah. pulling the orca backwards and you realize the sheer might of this thing. Yeah. Right. However, this is how Frank Mundus caught his four thousand five hundred pound monster back in nineteen sixty four. With the barrels? Mm-hmm. Yes. With the oh, harpoons oh. and the barrels and mm. nets and the whole wow. thing that fishermen Dang. do. It's the real life deal. It would have worked on a real shark because it's been proven to do so. The movie required a more exciting and explosive way to deal with Jaws. Right. Of course it did. Of course. Yeah. Additionally, in the true story, the scientists and fishermen tasked with catching the shark in 1916 were not killed in the process. Oh, good. Which Mm. is fantastic. The four earlier victims were all the shark got to before meeting its own fate. Obviously, in 1916, there were no rules against mm-hmm, the hunting yeah. and killing of sharks. So yep. they obviously were like, this shark, there's, there's a thing yeah. called rogue shark theory, which mm. is total nonsense nowadays. But it's like, this shark has gone rogue. It's purposefully attacking people mm. because it wants mm-hmm. human flesh. And that's mm, nonsense. Not it. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. Right. But back then. Yeah. The sharks they believe, they think humans are. Other things, right? Just and that's whatever. Why, yeah. yeah. I mean, they'll attack. They'll attack anything, especially if somebody is struggling to swim. Mm-hmm. Humans are not very graceful swimmers. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Even if you are swimming correctly, it's very floppy and splashy, right? Mm-hmm. And that to a shark seems like an animal in distress. Yeah. And they're yep. going to attack it because it's yep. going to be the uh, easiest yep. meal if they're hungry. Yeah. 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 That's why, like, people on a surfboard. You know, from yep. underneath, you look just the same as if it were looking up at like a seal or a turtle mm-hmm. because they always hunt from underneath, especially yep. great yeah. whites. Yep. They're gray on the top, white on the bottom to be camouflaged from both ends. Yeah. You know, because fish always hunt from the top and bottom, not from the mm-hmm. side. There was none of that stuff around back in 1916. Yeah. yeah. Or even when Jaws came out. Mm-hmm. So this was immediately terrifying to people because oh, yeah. it was like, that shit's in the yep. ocean? Yep. Yeah. That thing just wants to eat I'm me. never mm-hmm. going swimming they were in the like, ocean again. Yeah. This is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Can we do something exactly. about it? Luckily, if you go to the right kind of beach, mm-hmm. yeah. um, a lot of them nowadays have like shark nets. Right. Mm-hmm. If you see buoys out there, it's yeah. usually keeping a net up so nothing can get close into shore mm-hmm. there. So those are the kind of beaches that I'm like, yes. yes. Yeah, let's do it. Let's yeah. go to that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For a film almost 50 years old, Jaws continues to deliver to audiences old and new alike, which no doubt. Yeah. Is a, it's had a huge yeah. impact. Jaws is firmly the apex predator when it comes to <laughs> any other shark film. Right. Yep. This is the shark film. This is yep. the shark film. Jaws inspired many horror films. In fact, the script for Ridley Scott's 1979 science fiction film, Alien, was pitched to studio executives as Jaws in Space. I, yeah. I mean, it is. It pretty much is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> The film was vital in establishing the benefits of a vast national release backed by heavy television advertising and played a significant part in establishing summer as the prime season for releasing studios' biggest box office contenders. Yep. So when you think about big summer movies, you can thank Jaws. Yep. Jaws is the reason for the season. Mm -hmm. That's right. (laughs) Opening a film simultaneously at thousands of theaters and massive media buys are now commonplace for the major Hollywood studios. According to film historian and critic Peter Biskind, Jaws diminished the importance of print reviews, making it virtually impossible for a film to build slowly 
finding its audience by dint of mere quality. Moreover, Jaws wet corporate appetites for big profits quickly, which is to say studios wanted every film to be Jaws. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> they saw this. They didn't know this could happen. They yeah. didn't even know. And then yeah. it happened. They were like, <gasps> yeah. oh, shit. Because it, it would always be even movies that, you know, overall made more money than Jaws. Yeah. yeah. Building slowly, getting people's, to, you know, word yep. of mouth kind of thing. Yeah. People keep going to see it. But who knew that it could, a lot of it could happen all at once. Yeah. And you who get your millions right away. Immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what people say about it. Right. People don't need to read review. Like they just went. Yeah. Yeah. They already saw it. <laughs> Jaws might be the prototypical blockbuster, a feat of studio genius and marketing, as well as Spielberg's filmmaking. Considered one of the greatest films ever made, Jaws was a defining moment in motion picture history. Yeah. You know, during my research about the making, there's so many stories because of how ridiculously troublesome <laughs> the shooting of this was. I believe yeah. it was supposed to take 60-ish days. It took oh my. 156 days. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Something like that. The The shark from Finding Nemo, everyone's favorite shark, Bruce, mm-hmm. is a reference to Jaws yeah. because they nicknamed the animatronic shark Bruce, Bruce. because it was so awful. <laughs> but man oh man i will say as far as horror movies go i think jaws i can handle Mm -hmm. (laughs) i've seen it enough times now where it doesn't scare me but back Mm -hmm. back when i saw the first time i'm sure i was scared yeah i think for you i i feel like monster man versus nature Mm -hmm. yeah horror movies are fine maybe not so bad and as somebody who doesn't like horror, or I guess claims mm-hmm. to not like horror, mm-hmm. I can I still love Jurassic Park. Simply, I'm yeah. a dinosaur nut. I yes, literally as you're wearing literally a... wearing a raptor hoodie <laughs> yeah. right now while speaking. <laughs> but you're right. There yeah. are certain ones. Maybe it is the nature thing. Maybe it's just the fact that it's dinosaurs. Maybe sharks are cool enough. Yeah, I, I do like sharks. Maybe, that I yeah. think they're neat. Terrifying real stories, but. Pretty yeah. good movie. Those yeah. stories are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. And so let's hear some more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mine right. mine is a little different because mine might not have ever happened. Well, Ooh, part of it, the beginning part of what I'm going to talk about absolutely did. Mm-hmm. But after that, mm, some people, not really sure. Debatable. Whether you're a fan of horror or not, you likely have heard of the Amityville Horror. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The infamous house on Ocean Avenue along the coast of Long Island was the site of an incredibly tragic murder. That much is indisputable. The story that took place beyond that has certainly faced its fair share of skepticism. Multiple films follow the story of the Lutz family, but I am going to focus on the one that premiered in 1979. Aha. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the one with James Brolin in it. Oh, yeah, the OG. Yeah. (laughs) I rewatched it again. Yay. Oh, boy. Here's the synopsis to the Amityville Horror. So I'm going to start with that, and then we'll move backward. Cool. George and Kathy Lutz move into a house on the coast of Long Island, New York, with their three children. Their new home is quite the fixer-upper, and even though the real estate agent has disclosed that the previous family had been murdered, the Lutzes move in anyway. Not long after, their daughter starts playing with an imaginary friend. George starts acting strange, and the house's past seemingly comes back to haunt them. Ooh. Oh, boy. It's a haunted house flick. No, thanks. Yes. You, don't, you don't like those? No. <laughs> because then every creak and, and sound in my own house will be like, oh, God. This is the kind of haunting story where there's no guesswork. It's not like right. you hear footsteps, you know, was that a footstep or was that a tree outside? It's like, no. No, the, this it's is very much like... Yeah, that was 100% footsteps. Yeah. <laughs> Stuart Rosenberg directed the film with a screenplay written by Sander Stern. After the alleged hauntings in December of 1975, George and Kathy Lutz approached a screenwriter named Jay Anson, who wrote a book about their experiences. It was a bestseller, and he eventually sold the film rights for over $200,000 to American International Pictures. Actor James Brolin was cast in the lead, and the film began shooting sometime in the fall of 1978. Ow. Yeah. So the book came out in, like, 1977. Yeah. And before that, there were already stories circulating about 
that house Mm -hmm. because there had been this really high profile crime there. Everybody knew about that crime. So I think people were kind of already just kind of watching it. Yeah. You know, the actual home was not used in the film as it did not have a good layout for filming and because the current residents and the people of Amityville did not wish for more publicity. In fact, the house owners sued the book publisher for invasion of privacy, claiming that the book was not fact-checked and their home had turned into a tourist attraction. Oh, no. Oh, snap. Bummer. Yeah, the people uh. who moved in after the Lutz family. So we're going to talk about the original story. Here we go. This one's pretty right. intense. On November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his parents and four siblings around 3.15 in the morning. Initially, he did not report the murders until the next day when he ran into a bar and declared that his parents had been shot. Shortly after being taken into custody for his protection, at this point they thought somebody was mm, yeah, they were like targeting his family. His family. Killed, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. DeFeo confessed to committing the homicide. Many facts about the crime didn't seem to add up. For example, no one in the house seemed to hear the murders, as all victims were found face down in bed. No neighbors reported hearing shots either. Toxicology reports suggested no sedatives were used, although DeFeo claimed otherwise. His story often changed in the subsequent years. Oh, yeah. No one ever knew why he did it. Yeah. No one ever really knew how he did it. Many d- times he changed the story. Uh, all you know, sometimes he said his sister was an accomplice. Sometimes he said that mm. they killed each other. Then he killed one of them. He, wow. He, yeah, and they were all found face down in bed. Which that is the strangest part of the story because yeah. you know the gun is loud. Mm-hmm. So going from room to room. Surely would have heard it. Right. Yeah. Surely it would have woken you up. Two of the people in the house, they said there were two people where it seemed that they may have been awake when they were shot. Mm. But but they you know, so hard to tell. Yeah. yeah. But they were all found in the exact same position. That's crazy. And I'm sure him switching up the story all the time just adds to that mystery. Yeah. It's yeah. just like what the hell? Were they all shot in the same way? Like, no, I don't believe okay. so. The parents... so they were all just probably placed face down. Yeah, I, I would honestly don't know. Yeah, oh, I just man. know that the parents were shot twice each, mm-hmm. and that the kids were all shot once. Wow. Just about a year later, on December eighteenth, nineteen seventy-five, the Lutz family moved in. The seemingly paranormal experiences that followed for the next twenty-eight days would become the topic of a book written by Jay Anson, which I spoke about a little bit earlier. It started with the family priest, who came to bless the home. After entering the house, he reported that he heard a man's voice yell to get out. He turned around to find he was alone. Afterward, his car stalled suddenly along the side of the road after the hood and door swung open and the windshield shattered. He called another priest for a ride home. After being dropped off, his friend called to tell him that he also was experiencing strange car trouble after giving him the ride. Mm. Yikes, man! Yeah, that's that's screwed up for the ghost to follow you. Mm-hmm. That's unfair. It seems like in a lot of people's experiences with hauntings, ghosts tend to be limited. Generally, leave you alone. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of there. They don't really, do, you know, they might move stuff or show up, yeah. but it's not there to scare you or to really interact with you. They're mm-hmm. just there. Yeah, and then demons are more like. You know, voice mimicking, screw with you, yeah. kind of, yeah, yeah, the sleep paralysis, you know, all of that stuff. And so I, I've heard that at times they may follow Yikes. specific people. Also, on the first day, the family dog somehow jumped over the fence and almost died of strangulation. George and his son were able to rescue the dog in time. Even though the dog is a prominent character in the movie, this scene is not depicted, so... Hmm. You don't have to worry about seeing the dog almost die. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> However, I will warn you, spoilers for the 2005 version of <laughs> yes. Amityville Horror, the dog does die in that. Yes. You do not see the dog die. However, George does kill the dog. Scratch that one off mm-hmm. the list. Yeah. George Lutz claimed to experience a lot of strange phenomena. He supposedly awoke at 3.15 a.m., the approximate time of the murders, for several nights in a row. He witnessed a figure by the boathouse that disrupted the family dog. He also never seemed to feel warm in the house and became obsessed with fueling the fireplace. This detail is another piece of the story featured prominently in the movies. This is 
this happens a lot in the movie. Yeah. Basically, what's going on is he's always talking about how cold it is. Oh, it's 72. It feels like 32. Oh, my gosh. But, oh, man, this house just must not be insulated very well. And he seems to be the only one who's really upset about the heat yeah. or that being cold. And he kind of becomes obsessed with chopping wood mm. and throwing things in the fire. And it, it gets to be really weird. Yeah. As the month went on, the family experienced more events like toilets filling with a dark substance, foul-smelling air, nightmares of the murders, and an upside-down crucifix. One of the things that's in the movie that they said happened was that the, the wife, Kathy, woke up and could tell you how everyone died. Like, she, she woke up wow. and, and, you know, was talking about, like, having nightmares of the murders occurring. Hmm. One of the nights when George went to check the boathouse, he saw his five-year-old daughter standing in the window watching him with a pig's face behind her. Oh, come on. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) This is... I don't like this. I do do feel like I remember that that image from one of the movies. I don't remember if it was the 2005 or the... Yeah, in the 1979 one. Because it's like a... This is not haphazard. It is not a scary moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it, you. You just kind of. It, it just looks like clip art of a pig. <laughs> oh, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> nice. The family priest had a bad feeling about one of the rooms in the Lutz's house, so he called. The phone cut out during the call, but the Lutzes took the warning seriously. When they told the kids, Missy, the five-year-old, explained that they couldn't go in the room because her imaginary friend Jody was in there. Oh, oh boy. What? <laughs> Eventually, the Lutz family had had enough. They ran out of their home after 28 days and stayed with Kathy's mother. But even after leaving the house, they experienced floating above their own beds and slime coming up the stairs after them. <sighs> Dude, <sighs> un fair (laughs) to follow that's bullshit they reportedly moved to california to get far away from their home so this is there was a lot of stuff in that book a lot a lot of stuff and uh, the family they the this couple has since passed away but for years they maintained that this was a true story and a lot of people were i'm going to talk about it but a lot of people were very upset because it's essentially, if it's not a true story, mm-hmm. it feels like two people capitalizing off of a horrible tragedy. Right, yes. Right. You know? After the publication of the Amityville Horror, many of these claims were seemingly debunked. In 1979, the attorney for Ron DeFeo Jr. claimed that he and the Lutzes created the story together over some wine. He said that he wanted to write a book with them, but they cut him out of the deal and found another writer. And this part we know is true in the sense that they were going to write a book with him, Mm. and they did cut him out. When people asked them about it, they said it was because they felt like Ron, the man who murdered his family, was going to get money. Ah. And so that was why they said said that was why they cut him out. Yeah. Furthermore... Several publications began investigating all of the claims in the book and found a lot of discrepancies. It appeared that the Lutzes had not contacted the Catholic Church during their ordeal, which was a big part of the story. Having the priest come over, the priest was a big part. And when they initially wrote the book, that was pretty much one of the only sources that the writer used to corroborate the story. So Mm -hmm. there was a priest that he did talk to and that he was like, their stories match up. In later years, Daniel Lutz, the oldest of the three children, claimed that the hauntings did happen, but were caused by evil spirits drawn to George Lutz and his dabbling with the occult. Ooh. So here is how the movie changed the story. As you can imagine, the Amityville Horror from 1979 added story elements and visuals to make the story seem more exciting to viewers. As you do. Right, as, as all of them do. Although many feel that the Lutz's story is already too unbelievable, to begin with, the film and its remakes expanded further. For starters, the film depicts the family priest entering the house, hearing the disembodied get out, and receiving boils on his hands. However, the film also shows him getting locked in a room that immediately fills with flies. Oh. Ah, yes. No one has ever claimed that this occurred. (laughs) 
The priest suffers from several afflictions on screen and is blinded by the spirits. Although a real-life priest claimed to suffer various torments, this was not one of them. Interesting. Yeah, having him get blinded, I think, was... It's such a strange part of the movie. He's yeah. nowhere near the house, and yeah. where you know the spirits crumble this statue that falls on his head and blinds him. Ugh. Oh. Screenwriters completely fabricated one of the most famous scenes in the film. It features the babysitter, Jackie, getting locked in the closet by Jody, the invisible imaginary friend of the Lutz's youngest daughter. She knocks so hard that her hands bleed until the parents come home and let her out. This is one of the most unsettling parts that of the movie. doesn't sound yeah. like fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think this part is, it's really, this is not the type of, type of movie with like jump scares. Yeah. yeah. With scary, really scary monster things. This is the type of movie where a lot of it's psychological. Mm -hmm. You're just kind of waiting for things to happen. So in this scene, basically all they did was the babysitter goes into the closet she's you know watching the young girl she's putting her clothes away and the ghost or the ghost or demon whatever it is slams the door and the babysitter's like okay let me out let me out mm -hmm. and the little girl doesn't let her out and right. she just knocks and knocks and screams and knocks until mm -hmm. the family comes home which yeah. is probably hours later yeah. Yeah. yeah and so when they come out she's hysterical yeah. her hands are bleeding and like the, the it didn't do anything to her in there, but it was no. just you know that yeah. And of course, there's no lock on the door. There's no mm -hmm. reason. Jeez, you doesn't know. stick usually. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And they asked the little girl, you know, why didn't you open the door? Jody told me not to. Yeah. In their book, both George and Kathy Lutz claimed that the house was built on indigenous land near a place where the Shinnecock tribe would leave dying loved ones. The film expresses this information, but the Shinnecock did not live in the Amityville area and did not abandon their sick and elderly loved ones. Yeah, there were two, there were two big things. They said it was a, a, an Indian burial, burial ground, is what they said, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which, you know, historians and those, that tribe yeah. both said, no, we, mm -hmm. we did not bury anybody there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, we did not just leave our loved ones when they were dying, because that, that yeah. was what they were sitting. Nonsense. And then the yeah. second one was that a witch, a man that was a witch from the Salem witch trials, had moved there, built a house, and was buried on the property. Mm -hmm. That was the other thing. That's something mm. that you can't even debunk because no. it's not even, there's you, no record no of proof, that. No that is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, just, that's a thing that's so. People in the area had that last name, had his last name, but... Yeah. Initially, the Amityville Horror was meant to be a made-for-TV film, but ended up being the second-highest-grossing film of the year and the highest-grossing independent film until 1990. It broke ground as one of the first truly popular haunted house films. It not only inspired several remakes and sequels, but it also inspired a lot of haunted house media. Critics seemingly despised the film although it was uplifted by over-the-top performances and the draw from basing a horror film on true events, no matter how questioned those events may be. Man, oh man. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, you think you'll watch this one? Absolutely not. <laughs> what? But I think that it was important because now there's more haunted house things. You yeah. know, the haunted house thing. Yep. The haunted house trope now where the mm -hmm. new couple moves into a yeah. obviously haunted house and the husband's yeah. like, what? Nothing's going on. You know, all that right. stuff. Yeah. So he even says in the beginning, because she's like, I'm not sure if we should live here. Mm -hmm. And he says, houses don't have memories. Mm. So. Ooh, that came to that me. I disagree with. <laughs> I disagree with in that real too. life. Yeah, yeah. I think that houses. I I don't know. Would you guys move into a house where something like this happened? If it was pointed out to me before buying, like I'd consider not. Yeah, just because of that, I'd have a hard yeah. time just knowing that. Especially mm -hmm. if it was the previous family. Yeah. Maybe if like it was oh two hundred years ago, this happened in this house. Maybe yeah. I wouldn't be as 
right. hesitant. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could. I don't think I, I don't either. think I could. Yeah. yeah. I to me it's not so much. It's a couple different things. Mm-hmm. Like it would feel really weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. I would still I just I mean, I'm just reading about this. I feel so bad for yeah. that family. Absolutely. You know, like I feel of it's and so I'm just kind of like I, that would feel so awful. And then also just I'm not afraid that they're going to haunt me no. or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more just that the feeling of something tragic happened. You know, yeah. the feeling of yeah. tragedy can stay with a the, place. Yeah. You know? Yeah, a death and not a peaceful one. Yeah. Yeah. One that was born from a horror yeah. is just. Exactly. I, I, yeah. So that's the Amityville horror. And whether or not it's based on true events, yeah. everybody else gets to decide. That's yeah. right. Yeah. You get to decide. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about A Nightmare Before Elm Street. I mean, A Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is one that really, I was like, that one? Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) What? Yeah, we we watched that one, and we're like, what? The one with Freddy (laughs) Krueger? Are you kidding me? Yeah, beds like, eat people in real seems, life. Yeah, it seems like the ma- most made-up thing of a made-up really thing. Does. So dreams fascinate everyone. They have gripped humanity for years across many religions and cultures. In the Bible, Joseph has dreams that foretell of his future, where his brothers bow down to him. Not only did he have these dreams, but he also interpreted the dreams of others. Historically, the dreams of kings, royalty, and pharaohs tended to be deemed more important, and many ancient civilizations have believed in the powers of dreams. But what happens when those dreams turn sour and become a nightmare? (sighs) Man. Dude, I don't like nightmares at all, man. No? Have have you guys ever had it where you know you've had a nightmare, but you don't remember any yeah. of it? Mm-hmm. So that happens to me yeah. sometimes yeah. where I'll just like wake up yeah. and I'm like sweating. I'm like, what the heck happened? Yeah. And I really But vivid. you remember mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. I really had, vivid nightmares. I had a nightmare Ugh. last night. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Oh, don't remember much about it. So a nightmare on Elm Street. If you haven't seen it, here's a little synopsis. Teens in Springwood, Ohio. Uh, shout out Ohio, <laughs> the scariest state of all oh, it really is sometimes <laughs> teens in springwood ohio have dreams that seem similar a particular nightmarish character comes after them when one of the young girls dies after falling asleep and having another nightmare it is up to the others to find out what is really going on and try to stop it from happening to them yeah oh boy mm-hmm. So Wes Craven was the director and writer for the film. And fun fact, every studio before New Line had rejected it. Wes has since even framed and hung the rejection from Universal on the wall in his office. Nice. <laughs> He's like, you didn't get this movie. That's great. <laughs> the first movie that Wes Craven was able to write and direct, was a famous movie called The Last House on the Left. Oh, my gosh. This one's a pretty famous one. This one rocked audiences. This is a huge movie. Mm. The backers of this movie had wanted a scary movie. And so he and Sean Cunningham, who had hired him, made Last House on the Left. Before this, he had never thought of doing a horror movie. It's not what he set out to do, especially being raised in a strict Protestant household. However, after the success of two films, he was able to take six months off and focus on the horror genre. He took this time to write and refine A Nightmare on Elm Street. I wish I could focus enough to write something that would become such a success. I know, know? me Mm -hmm. too. Just maybe not even write, just do anything. But but like even six months, I'm like, God, I need another six months. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, it's fine if I take her, if I just like hang out first, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, week, exactly. Like, you know, yeah, now see if something comes to and me. And then the six months are gone. <laughs> yep. In a 2014 interview with Vulture magazine, Wes Craven recounted the most prominent real life inspiration for the film. He said, I'd read an article in the LA Times about a family who had escaped the killing fields in Cambodia and managed to get to the US. Things were fine, and then suddenly, the young son was having very disturbing nightmares. He told his parents he was afraid that if he slept, 
the thing chasing him would get him, so he tried to stay awake for days at a time. When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought this crisis was over. Then, they heard screams in the middle of the night. By the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of a nightmare. Here was a youngster having a vision of a horror that everyone older was denying. Oh, God. Mm. Supposedly, the parents were trying to get him to sleep, so they were giving, you know, giving him sleeping pills. Oh. And yeah. they found that he had hid them underneath his oh, he pillow. Didn't take them. And he had um, a what the equivalent of a Mr. Coffee Pot, whatever that was at, yeah. at, mm-hmm. in the 1970s, 1980s. By the Something bedside. to brew coffee mm-hmm. with, real quick. Interesting. Yeah. Oh my oh, god. Man. So that was that was the biggest article that grabbed his attention but there were some other articles that had that similar kind of feel yeah i i know that i i've heard that just not sleeping for even a couple days Mm -hmm. people start to really be affected so i can't imagine something like this Mm -hmm. so here's a little background info on what happened to this child before this nightmare The Vietnam War was a brutal conflict. Some people were disrespectful towards those that fought because they disagreed with the war. Our American soldiers were able to come home to the soil which they were familiar. Unfortunately, some of our allies did not have the same opportunity. America fought against communism in Laos and were limited to bombing from above because the Geneva Accords made it illegal to send troops on land. The CIA made plans to arm civilians in Laos to circumvent this rule. To achieve this, the CIA exploited the unease between the minority Hmong Hill dwellers and the lowland Lao majority. They persuaded the minority to help secretly with the promise of good pay and resources. So many of their people perished within the fights, many saying that more lives were lost than American lives. When America eventually pulled out of Vietnam, General Vang Pao, a CIA recruiter and Hmong native himself, knew that swift revenge would be on those who had opposed communism. He took control and helped the CIA arrange for 3,500 Hmong residents to be evacuated via three airplanes. The rest of the people fled by foot, approximately 40,000 of which, and not all, made it to thailand yeah yeah it's just so so tragic and horrific yeah those who escaped to america encountered a large culture shock as they weren't familiar with 24-hour drive-throughs and other facets of american life (laughs) (laughs) the the thing you grab onto first is like food yeah. Yep. And no matter what time it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. food at any time or just walking into a grocery store and yeah, you know, just, shelves. Yeah, and just like all the all of the other things that are different about mm-hmm. where we live, you know. I remember I had an anthropology professor talk about that and just you know, when she would go over and to be in be in a different country for a long period of time and then she'd mm-hmm. come back here, she would experience culture shock, even though she was yeah. from America. <laughs> yeah. According to migrationpolicy.org. As of 1975, when the war ended, more than 200,000 Hmong refugees traveled to America. Many settled in Minnesota, Seattle, Portland, Iowa, and Orange County, California. During the 1980s, a strange occurrence began happening. A usually healthy 20 to 30-year-old male, Hmong, would have labored, loud breathing during sleep and then would suddenly pass away. Oh, no. Wes Craven read several articles about this happening, and he was inspired. He thought about different reasons why this could have happened, and thought that the dream had killed the men. I guess you, you know, mentally have such a traumatic thing. Mm -hmm. I mean... Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah. So it's not totally unrealistic. For it to be a completely mental thing and still yeah. suffer from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll link to some of these articles that may have inspired him and his thinking and, and how he went with this movie. But I couldn't, and it doesn't seem like anybody else can find that main 
article, the one about the young boy. Oh. Uh, so I, I don't know exactly where he found that or saw that. I believe it. he read a bunch of Los Angeles Times ones. Hmm. I, I'm not subscribed to Los Angeles, so I <laughs> right. can't see their previous articles as yeah. much. Hmm. So it must be in their maybe archives. Maybe it's in their some, archives. Yeah. yeah. But we'll we'll link to some of those. A lot of the later ones explain that it could be a cardiovascular it was a cardiovascular issue mm. that ended up happening. They're not I don't believe they ever found out exactly why. But by the end of 1981, the CDC had identified 35 cases of Hmong deaths in the US from this unexplained phenomenon. Oh, man. And more later. So strange. I wonder if it was some kind of lingering thing from mm -hmm. where, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Traveled with it for mm -hmm. so many years and then. Or, yeah, oh, just. Yeah. Who the, knows? Some of the weapons that were used. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. having exactly. some kind of adverse effect that they didn't realize until later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We always want to make sense of the unexplained. And so one reason many thought that this could be happening was a mixture of the culture shock stress, and PTSD. And still others believed it could have been delayed effects of the chemical warfare that the North Vietnamese employed. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So A Nightmare on Elm Street didn't necessarily change the story. Instead, it took a simple idea of dying while screaming or struggling to breathe and expanded it, creating a singular character to fear that turns nightmares to death. So... Here's some of the ideas of of the movie that Wes Craven grabbed from pieces of his own life or yeah. things he saw that created this character of Freddy. Freddy is the name of a kid that would often beat up Wes as a kid. <laughs> okay. All so right. there you go. And the name Kruger reminded him of a German name and the war plants in Nazi Germany. Oh, my. So, yeah, very. Oh, yeah. Very okay. villainous. It was also an extension of Krug, who is a character in Last House on the Left. Oh, okay. So there you go. So he's bringing it around, bringing his past movies in. And Freddy's hat was inspired by a man that Wes knew as a child, and he wore a similar cap that had scared him. Yeah. There's something oh. about he saw him, and he thinks that it was actually just a drunk man or something that kind of walked by, but... It just freaked him out. What a wild <laughs> life Wes Craven has led. <laughs> when trying to decide what weapon Freddy would have, he watched his cat at the time stretch out their claws and had that aha moment. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Because he was like, you know, thinking about all the villains at that time yeah. in the movies a lot of them had knives. And he was like, I don't want it to just be yeah. a knife. Like, that's so, that's like, we need it to be yeah. different. Yeah. Well, see, it, and that's cool because he's a nightmare villain. He's mm -hmm. something that your mind, you know, in, in, in a sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's like this, you know, glove of knives. Right. Kind of like what your imagination would come up with. Like, what's worse than mm -hmm. a knife? It's like right. a whole hand of it, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. When I was a kid, there was a Planet Hollywood here in Columbus, mm -hmm. and I got to go to, I think, one Ooh. time. And they had the f a full size Freddy Krueger oh, in a glass case, and I was just so terrified of it, yeah. but also just so drawn to. It. I remember standing, staring at it, I walking mean, around yeah. with all the hand. Like I was so like, "Oh my, what is this thing? <laughs> what is this? Yeah." And then my sister asked me if I wanted to watch Edward Scissorhands, and I assumed. That that's what Edward Scissorhands was, oh. because oh, because this like it had, looks I like I didn't know what he was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I said no. <laughs> that's so funny that you mentioned that because yeah. I remember when I was younger, going to a blockbuster, like. Obviously, I didn't like scary movies back then. Yeah. But for some reason, I still would walk down the horror movie aisle and like kind of. Timidly yeah. look at the covers of right. horror movies and be like, "Whoa!" A lot of them are very fascinating, weird, yes. really colorful, mm -hmm. and yeah. yeah. Which a lot of the horror people have masks, and yeah. Wes wanted his villain to have a sort of mask, but he also wanted them to be able to express and make fun, like crazy yeah. faces and stuff. And so he finally he decided on doing like a burnt face, which interesting, yeah. yeah. 
Lucid dreaming inspired the fact that Nancy could bring back Freddy's hat. So they say New Line Cinema was the house that Freddy built. A Nightmare on Elm Street was the first really successful film for the studio. The ending gross revenue was approximately $24 million. Right. That's wow. right. Which was pretty decent. It made, it made it so they could make others. Rob Zombie, an American singer-songwriter, aptly said in the same Vulture magazine article as before that Freddy Krueger built New Line the same way Frankenstein built Universal, the same way Saw built Lionsgate. Yeah. It was amazing for New Line Cinema. <laughs> yeah. And it made it possible for them to later produce the Conjuring movies, the Blade movies, Seven, Lord of the Rings, Final Destination, and more. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Nightmare on Elm yeah. Street. Hey. There you go. Seriously. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. That's, I, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a big one. Yeah, they yeah. did not think that one would be so big, I, but it was. Yeah. I would be like, you know, so sad <laughs> if Lord of the Rings didn't exist. Yes. Mm-hmm. When they finally acquired Friday the 13th, they spent 10 years working on the Freddy versus Jason movie which was a huge success due to the loyal fans of both franchises. We were children yeah. when yeah. that movie came out, and kids in our class went to see it. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. I remember it was, that. That was a it big was deal. Big. Yeah, was like, that was oh a really gosh, big deal. I was like, Freddy who, who's Freddie and Jason? I don't understand. Yeah, yeah well, like, I've never that? seen either of I don't those know what that is. <laughs> at that time. <laughs> it had a major impact. People loved it, and there were several sequels. There were even dolls and other toys made. Which, when you think about, is pretty crazy and weird when he's actually a child killer. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> That's what I think when I see a Pennywise doll. Yep. I'm like, um. Yeah. Um. Uh, <laughs> it's, really? the, it's those horror nuts who love that stuff. They love to collect it. And... I'll be honest. I wouldn't mind having a Freddy like, yeah. doll or he's a Freddy pretty... sweater or something. Yeah, yeah. That'd be kind of cool. I I can't hate on people who collect that stuff. I yeah. have too much crap. May not be from horror movies, but pff, I got a lot of crap. <laughs> movies are great at reaching inside our brains and stimulating our deepest fears. It's always nice to flip on the lights and take a deep breath, remembering it was all just a movie. But what happens when the story is true? Well, thankfully, the true stories that inspire scary films are not usually as terrifying as what you see on screen. But if even parts of these fantastic tales are true, what other strange and terrifying phenomena lurk in the unknown? Ooh. Ooh, we're leaving you with that. It's terrifying. Because yeah. even the Amityville horror, you know, them saying that it's not real and the debunking. Yeah. Right. Still, I still, I mean, while I was researching and watching the movie, I was like, this is still, I don't like yeah, it. Yeah. I still don't like this. Yeah. Yeah. Any piece of it that may be real. Like, just, we know the murders happened. I know. That yeah. one, that's awful. But any one of the haunting pieces, if it did happen, mm-hmm. it's horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's. Don't buy a haunted house. Yeah. Don't swim in the ocean. Don't sleep. Don't Here we go. There you there go. You're there good. You go. You're good. <laughs> Great advice, Robert. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Great advice. Well, that's going to do it for this Frightening February episode. That is a case closed. Oh, there we go. Ah, yes. Perfect. Nailed it. <laughs> Didn't mess it up once. No, not a one. It's so we're, yeah. we got it. It's we usually get it. me, but. We get it. Well, nobody messed up. We get yeah. it every time. <laughs> so there we go. But. Before we go, we'd like to thank our patrons, of course. Joel, John, Jacob, Jacqueline, JD, Anthony, Shelly, Linda, Bob, Carlos, and Jaron. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Thank you. You are As the best. As always, yeah. thank you so much. You can now buy us a popcorn at buymeacoffee.com slash Diary. And thank you to all who support us, whether it be through listening, telling a friend, or donating. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. You guys are great. Mm-hmm. We've been going up on those good pod charts. That's right. A little bit because yeah. you guys, that's really cool. Yes, that is so cool. And if you want to help us out even more, you could leave us a review, yeah. a rating on iTunes or Spotify. They or both good have pods. ratings now. Or good pods if you yeah. feel up to it. Sure. You can also become a patron of ours. That would be super swell. Sure. Yep. We've got lots of cool stuff over there art and extended episodes and more to come. 
or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Those yeah. will be awesome too. So yeah. thank you so much for listening. Thank you. We will see you next time. Yes. Tune wow. in next time. We talk about the Lost Boys and how mm. it was based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But not really. Maybe one day. Maybe. Yeah. Bye. Goodbye. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep.